0: Snuff production. Hey, Katrina Blau is here with you. When the 2002 Bali bombings happened, I was a pretty young journo working in my first job. It was one of those huge news events where I think everyone at the time, you, you remember where you were. Mm. Do you remember where you were, Tom?
1: Yeah, I do. I was a backpacker on the beach in San Sebastian in Spain when I heard the news, and the night before... I'd been out on the booze all over town, um, having a good time, you know, just like some of those Australians at the Sari Club in Coota.
0: Yeah, I I guess a lot of you guys listening will be younger. The memories of that might not be as clear. Mm. So as we get closer to the 20 year anniversary of the attack that killed 88 Australians, such a huge number, we are remembering what happened and how the shockwaves still ripple through people's lives.
2: There's an Indonesian woman who I've spoken to called Nelu Urniati and her husband worked in the Sari Club and died that night. She has actually reconciled with some of the bombers and now tours schools with them, teaching the power of forgiveness.
1: Yeah, it's an incredible story. That's Australian journalist Ali Donaldson. She was there in 2002 reporting on the story and now she's gone back to look at the impact 20 years on. So we're going to interview her right after today's headlines. It is Thursday, the 25th of August.
0: A simpler path to a pay rise. Unions want to make it easier for entire industries to sign up for a single enterprise bargaining agreement, negotiating exactly the same pay rises and conditions. You need to have a critical mass of people who can collectively bargain to push wages up. And we don't have that. We all agree it's collapsed. We all agree it's far too complicated. We just need to do the hard work
1: to fix it. So that's the ACTU Secretary Sally McManus speaking on the ABC's 7.30. On the other side of the bargaining table, the Australian Industry Group Chief Executive Innes Willox has said that the proposal equates to industry-wide patent bargaining, which is a one-size-fits-all approach that would damage the economy.
0: Yeah, these ideas are being floated in the media ahead of the government's jobs summit, which is happening next week, and it's where they're going to try and deal with the labour shortage and flat wages, two pretty meaty things to talk about there.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people are frustrated that they see, oh, unemployment's down at 3.5%, they can't mm. find any workers for so many different categories of jobs, but I can't get a pay rise, so what's going on here? Mm.
0: Yeah, you want to feel a bit more valued if the market is as tight as it appears to be.
1: And would you like 20 grand worth of your student debt wiped? Uh, yes, please. Well, that's what's happening for some students in the US. We will forgive
2: $10,000 in outstanding federal student loans. In addition, students who come from low-income families, which allow them to qualify to receive a Pell Grant, will have their debt reduced 20
0: dollars. President Biden there, can you imagine how much you'd be cheering if this was you? Uh, there are income limits, though, on the debt waiver, but it could still affect as many as 27 million people.
1: Yeah, so this news comes as student loan repayments in the US that were paused during the pandemic start up again. So there is a little bit of bitterness to the sweetness, but on the whole. Sounds pretty sweet. I mean, imagine you've got a hex debt here in Australia. Um, You'd be loving this news. So, Anthony Albanese, if you're listening, there's a few Aussie students who probably feel like they wouldn't mind this this news. A
0: bomb blast at a train station on Ukraine's Independence Day. Fifteen people have been killed with another 50 injured at a station in the southeast of the country. Now, this comes right as the country marks 31 years since its break from the Soviet Union.
1: Today also marks six months since Russia invaded, and the US are marking the occasion by committing another $4 billion in support for Ukraine, the biggest American package yet. And Pope Francis has weighed in, renewing calls for peace.
0: And the Finnish PM has held an emotional press conference where she's apologised, this time for photos of two women kissing topless at a party at her house. <laughs> Like love,
1: love so this is the latest in a string of headlines for Sana Marin, the Finnish PM. She's only 36 years old. So initially um, she had to address public scrutiny of a video that came out of her partying and dancing with friends that came out on social media. So she defended herself for that one and did agree to take a drug test and pass the drug test. There have been rumors she'd been on cocaine that night Now, this latest photo, which, um, you know, have to point out, it's not her that's topless. It's just two people at a party at her summer house. She's actually come out and said, you know, the photo is not appropriate, shouldn't have been taken, um, but did point out the women had just had a sauna.
0: Yeah. She's also told journalists, I'm only human. This week hasn't been easy. I think you could hear that in her voice just before. Uh, and I want to believe that people look at the work that we do, not what we do in our free time. Absolutely fair point. She's not taken time off work or official duties. She's allowed to have a good time and let her hair down. I think it's just because we're used to seeing much older people hold these positions of authority mm. that they're not partying in quite the same way. But for heaven's sakes, she hasn't done anything wrong or illegal or anything that's been out of line with her official duties.
1: Yeah, it's a strange one. It's not like um, it was a Boris Johnson party where it was during a lockdown or something. Yeah. She's just getting loose. you know. She's a woman in her 30s. <laughs> I, I, I cannot see the problem. I also don't quite understand why it's upset her so much. I I get the breach of privacy would be quite awkward and being pressured. But look, if I was in this situation, I look forward to this day where a big scandal comes out and I'm I'm a politician, I would stand up and say, all right, thank you all for gathering at this press conference today. I believe there's a photos of some people getting loose in my house and myself included. And just want to let you know that um, I love to party. I just love it. I love it. I have a great time. I work hard, I play hard, and I love getting loose with my friends. Thanks for coming. Any further questions? Oh, my
0: goodness. I think that would be the best press conference I would ever (laughs) attend. And I also think you wish that you would have the kind of party guest that uh, this Finnish PM is having at her house hanging out in your bathroom, Tom.
1: Well, I guess I need to get a sauna installed, don't I? (laughs) All right, on a much more serious note, uh, I'm about to do a deep dive on 20 years uh, since the Bali bombing in 2002.
2: These streets have never been so quiet. Indonesian authorities keeping a solemn vigil here until investigation teams arrive. There's word American FBI agents may even be on their way.
1: That's Aussie reporter Ali Donaldson on the scene in Kuta the day after the bombing that killed 202 people, including 88 Australians. And as we get closer to October 12, the 20th anniversary, a lot of us will be remembering what happened and trying to make sense of this atrocity. And to try and understand how it still affects people, Ali Donaldson's gone back to Bali to make a six-part podcast series for listener called Shockwaves. And the first two episodes have been released today. Here's a taste. Pretty much about four or five hours after we arrived, a terrorist attack on the Sari Club happened. There
0: was 11 of us there, and five of us ended up surviving, and six died.
2: I want to shot them by myself. You would shoot them? Yes, sure.
0: (sighs) Why? Because my husband dead. The life that we thought we were having just went, bang,
1: that's it. I think it was a test a test of strength, a test of determination and a test of courage. And in that podcast series, there are some great stories of strength, determination and courage. Ali Donaldson, why did you want to revisit this tragedy?
2: Hi, Tom. Over the years, I've spoken many times to survivors and people involved from when I was up there. And about three years ago, I caught up with Eric DeHart, who was with the Coogee Dolphins. And he was telling me how with the rise of social media, he now gets trolled every time he speaks about Bali, that people send him messages saying, oh, get over it. Are you making money out of this? And I was really so shocked by this, that he was now facing fresh issues to deal with and the strength and bravery he'd always faced what had been thrown onto him. But then I was also struck by how the memory of what happened was starting to get lost, that I'd speak to younger people who weren't really clear on what had happened in Bali or didn't know about it.
1: And you have a strong connection to the Bali bombing because you were there as a reporter. You flew there the day after the bombing. Can you describe what it was like to be there?
2: I'd never encountered so much grief on a scale Everyone up there was heavily mourning. They'd lost loved ones. A bomb blast is different to a fire as well. Blast injuries made it very difficult to identify people. So every day, loved ones were having to go to the hospital and makeshift morgues and try and identify their loved ones. It was so disturbing, so sad. The place was just full of grief. But in the middle of all of that, were these amazing people stepping up. And that's what always strikes me in these instances is the bittersweet, how people rally for each other, how they support each other, how simple things make big differences. I mean, to go through something like this, is extraordinary. Very, very few people go through something like this. And it struck the Balinese extremely hard as well. They're beautiful people. Mm. They're largely Hindu in Bali and they're very spiritual. And for them, it just like cut off all tourism. They all had to shut up shop. It was a body blow to them as well. It's very, very sad.
1: So one of the people on the scene soon afterwards was an AFP officer called Andy Thorpe and you interview him in this series, Shockwave. So Tell us about his role in the investigation and how they managed to find the men responsible for this atrocity.
2: Yeah, Andy's never spoken publicly about this before. It's very difficult for AFP officers to, he's now retired, but to go into sensitive detail about what went on. You're dealing with a terrorist hunt to start with. And also they had to work really closely with the Indonesian police and he spoke so glowingly about that He speaks about how the bonds on the ground, forming like a brotherhood with those police officers, is what won the day, how they worked together. And he was there for eight months until they got the bombers and how they did was just incredible. They had a really early breakthrough where one of their officers, one of the Indonesian National Police, found the serial code to the vehicle, found the VIN number, the vehicle identification number on a tiny piece of shrapnel. That had been welded over, the bombers had welded over it to add extra support to the van. They used a van packed with explosives, 14 filing cabinets full of explosives to blow up the Sari Club. And they had ground off all these identification numbers, except for this one that they had covered. So they'd thought they'd cover their own tracks. But that was the first um, link to who the bombers were.
1: So they ended up locking up over 30 people three men were executed in relation to the bombings in 2008. So was there a sense that they got everyone? And from the victims, was there a sense that justice was done?
2: Yeah, this justice trial became very important to many of them. And so speaking to Simon Quayle from the Perth Kingsley Cats, he was the coach of the Kingsley Cats, and they all returned a year later for the first anniversary. And I'd never thought of this before. I'd interviewed Simon up there at the time. He was this incredible leader. He just stepped up. He saved lots of lives. He'd taken this young team over. He lost seven of his team members in the atrocity. He was the first statement Andy took. And Andy became like a family member to him over the years. And so once the AFP officers had arrested pretty much all of the perpetrators. Simon said that then gave them the confidence to return. He said it gave us power back to return. And these are the stories I'm really interested in, the human stories on the uplift through this.
1: So are you saying that reflects that they did feel justice was done?
2: Yeah, look, they did. And so this recent development with um, another one of the bomb makers, Uma Patek, potentially getting early release. The Indonesian government's yet to decide on that. But he had a 20-year head sentence and that's been effectively cut to 10. Things like this cause whole fresh shockwaves for the victims. And that's partly why I called it shockwaves. It was like these emanating layers of grief, joy, the emotions you go through once you've been through a big event. And so a lot of them really struggled, particularly with the timing of this. It couldn't be worse timing for a lot of them coming up to the 20th anniversary, which is already very triggering for a lot of them.
1: So the Indonesian authorities are justifying this potential early release of Umar Patek by saying that he's been de-radicalised and could help deter others from terrorism. Do you think that could be true? Have other extremists involved in the Bali bombing been turned around through the Indonesian justice system?
2: Tom this was another really fascinating angle that opened up. There's an Indonesian woman who I've spoken to called Nilu Urniati, and her husband worked in the Sari Club and died that night. She had two little boys, a nine and a one year old at the time, and she went to the trials of the bombers and yelled out that she wanted a death penalty for them. But she has actually reconciled with some of the bombers. Under this Alliance for a Peaceful Indonesia plan, and now tours schools with them, teaching the power of forgiveness. For so Nilu, it's really changed her life, and she's helping to change other lives. So, Uma Patek, when he does come out, has been working with one of the people who was connected to the bombers. He's one of the brothers. And we go into great length about that in the podcast, too, about how that whole program's worked. And I wouldn't have understood it to start with, but after meeting Neeloo up in Bali this year again and speaking to her about it and going to the schools with her, it's really fascinating how this program works as
1: well. Right. This man who obviously um, represents such a devastating loss could actually be able to do good work once he's released?
2: Um, I don't want to stand judge and jury on other people, but I could see how something that is set up as a path to hatred, that's what terror is all about. It's about creating ripples of hatred. I could see how that path was turned with Nilu and her family. So she had intense hatred towards these men, but now her two sons have grown up with love and happiness And it's been directly connected to the decisions she's made, she believes. So I'm not saying that is necessarily the case for everyone, but it has, for her, turned a path that was towards hatred and could have led to retribution, violence, more hatred. It's turned it for her.
1: So as you mentioned, you've been talking to a number of the Aussie survivors, Eric DeHart from the Coogee Dolphins, Simon Quayle, who you mentioned before, and also Dr Fiona Wood, who was the burns specialist who treated a lot of the victims and then became Australian of the Year for her efforts. So what happened in the lives of these people? What did you want to share about the way the shockwaves rippled through their lives years afterwards?
2: Oh, Tom, Dr. Fiona Wood. I've been a reporter for 30 years and I think this was my favourite interview. She's an incredible woman. She was a mother of six at the time when this happened. Still is mother of six, I should say, but she had a very, very busy life going on. And how she rallied teams, her team, how she rallied survivors and the way she speaks about that time, she said they went through something absolutely extraordinary when everyone said yes. There was nothing that people wouldn't do to help I think there's a lot in this from people dealing with with life struggles today and challenges. There's a lot of takeaways in what these people have to say in how to cope with emotional stress. So it's not just the physical healing, it's the emotional healing. And to be aware of when it's going to hit you again and coping mechanisms you need to put in place. So she was telling me she suffers from vicarious trauma now. She sees these faces walking past her eyes every day now. Not one of those survivors has left her. But the importance of keeping time for the best people in your life, those you love the most, and being able to exhale at the end of each day, inhale and exhale.
1: Ali, what's going to happen on the actual day, October 12th, the the 20th anniversary? How will we mark this occasion?
2: Obviously, there'll be um, some sort of ceremony up in Bali. For the survivors I spoke to, they've all got different um, approaches to it it'll be an incredible time for them. I've no doubt it will um, raise, you know, fresh emotions for them all. Obviously very raw emotions. The emotions are extremely raw even now, but the way they spoke about it to me now was in such detail. I think even I was really surprised, like even those first few moments after the bomb went off, I wasn't fully aware when I was up there covering it how many life or death experiences many of them went through. And so there's a lot for them to unpack. But I think for a lot of them, there were new friendships and new people that came into their life that they really treasure now. You know, we lost 88 Australians Mm. in this um, strike. It was our worst peacetime attack on Australian civilians. So on top of that, hundreds more were injured thousands and thousands of lives directly affected by it and it really did change the fabric of Australia. So I hope people do reflect on what happened and how people stepped up in that moment of crisis to um, form better paths.
1: That's Ali Donaldson, Network 10 journalist and host of Shockwaves. It's the new six-part Bali bombings podcast. It's launching on listener today Also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and all the popular podcast apps. And as well as a great reminder about what actually happened, it also, I guess, shows some of the courage of the survivors and the responders and also those amazing stories about where people's lives have gone since. Tomorrow on The Briefing, a bit of a gear change. Um, Do you know what an intimacy coordinator does on a film set? Sounds kind of self-explanatory, doesn't it? Well, we're going to explain what they do when we speak to one uh, on the briefing tomorrow and find out about the way sex scenes are changing on film sets.
0: Listener